We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up? And shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. My name is Caleb Hag. With me as always are Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going? Also known as not Caleb Hag. That's right. Prof Hoff. The Prof Hoff is going to go off. <laughs> this is so fun. I just can't believe we get to do this. This I, And we, we're thankful for listeners who give us feedback because we... We are attentive. We hear your cries. <laughs> we, and we you? pray for you. We pray for you. We do, just so you know it. We pray for you guys, our listeners. Are we doing this wrong? I've been thinking about this recently. Okay, so here we go. Yes. Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> We're doing it wrong. Okay, so I, I listen to, uh, I got a couple of personal favorite podcasts that I listen to, which will remain anonymous because... Uh, they're not of a religious nature. And so uh, <laughs> some people might be offended by. Anyway, okay, so I listen to a couple of podcasts, and they're like leading podcasts in the podcast world, okay? Another thing that I do is I watch TBN for fun. Some people might find that odd. Uh, yeah. Hang on just a sec. So everybody's saying that your mic is a bit hot. Just, okay. Just back off the mic a little. I'll b- back your mic off. Um, so here's what I've noticed. TBN will do this thing where they'll be like, okay, hey, if you donate like $50, we'll send you this keychain with this prayer on it. And anytime you get discouraged, boom, look at your keychain, Right. Okay, and then you got, like, my, my favorite podcast. They're like, hey, if you send us, you know, like, 500 bucks, we'll, we'll knight you. Or, you know, or you get, like, you get, like, ultra-great status as one of the great members. And I'm thinking, hey, we don't do any of that. Now, of course, Torah Resource, who uh, essentially produces this show. I mean, I, I'm the producer of this show, but... Torah Resource produces this show. Torah Resource doesn't uh, doesn't ask for money ever, so we'd have to get, get around it. But I think I've come up with a scheme how we can do this. I like schemes. Okay, here we go. What if we got like you know a couple of different merchandise products? Like we get a cup, you know, like a mug, Robin Caleb Show mug. Maybe we get a T-shirt. Maybe we get a sweater. Now here's what we do. We sell. Each one for like okay, the mug two hundred bucks. My wife could knit the sweaters. Okay, even more than okay, like <laughs> I'm kidding. For like for like for like eight hundred dollars, you know that that's the sweater price. You <laughs> you want a sweater? And here's the thing: if you buy one of those products, 
will attach a name to it. So, like, let's no, say and we'll pray for it. We'll, <laughs> we'll pray over no, 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 the sweater. No, 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 no. See, I, lay hands yeah, on the sweater. Here's here's what I'm thinking, Rob. Somebody buys the mug for two hundred dollars, and we'll send them a plaque saying that we have we have now given them the Robin Caleb Show title Rabbi. Yeah, and the coffee that you drink out of that mug would be blessed. Awesome. Yes, of course. Yeah. And, and, and if you, it, so, so, so the mug level is like rabbi level. Okay. And I figure, you know, that's not a very high level anyway, because in the messianic movement, everybody's just giving them that, the, giving themselves that title anyway. But then you can get up to like, we'll say Matt. Okay. We'll have the five master, master rabbi. The, yeah. The, the $500 t-shirt level, you know, if you buy a, a t-shirt for 500 bucks, we'll give you the status of scribe and if you buy the sweatshirt for 800 bucks boom you're a rob and caleb sh show scholar is that the highest i think that should be the highest what's the platinum level well that that would be scholar level yeah maybe we could get one more out of it we'll have to uh we'll have to think about it all right enough messing around what up in shalom everybody out there as I already said, uh, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by Torah Resource. If you want to send us eight hundred bucks and uh, have us call you scholar, I'll, I'll call you a scholar for eight hundred bucks. <laughs> uh, no, I'm playing. Um, uh, at our, let's see here, who's our programmer today? Oh yes, that's right. As always, it's Gary Springer, and of course, running our chat room and our sage level must be a thousand. <laughs> Uh, that's running, true. That's true. There you go. Run in our chat room, and there is a lively bunch, a small but lively bunch, in the chat room today. <laughs> we'll accept Bitcoin. Uh, is uh, <laughs> Gary Springer? Okay. Is that all the credits that I need to give out? Yeah. Become a producer of the show. That's one thing that we could do. You can produce the show by sending in your your five hundred dollars for a for a t shirt. And and then you get to pick the topic. What if we made T-shirts that said you get to pick the topic? What if we made T-shirts that said I'm uh, I'm uh, executive producer the Robin Caleb show, <laughs> <laughs> dude? That way people can be like, yo, I, uh, you know, what what have you? So what are you doing now? Well, you know, I'm I'm still working at the at the mill yard, and uh, I also am the executive producer of a. Uh, Online radio program, the Robin that, Caleb Show. That has thirty six lists. That has thirty. Well, they wouldn't have to tell them that. I I think I got something going here. I'll have to I'll have to really work this out. Okay, I you know you know that dry erase board behind you. Yeah, I think you need to sketch out some new should, ideas. Should I be putting stuff on the back? I should I should be writing something up there every every week, shouldn't I? We're screwing around way too much at the beginning of the show okay. to get to it. No, I guess we're not. It's always fun to screw around a little bit. Uh, you know what? Hey, you know what? I was else. I, I, I'm all over the place. By the way, today I was extremely sick this last week. My wife, I'm laying on the couch like moaning and, and crying about how sick I am, and she's like, "You're such a baby. Why don't you get up? And, uh, hold your daughter. You're such a baby. Like, get up and do something. You're just laying on the couch all day long. Can you get off your phone, please? You know, as I'm like dying on the couch. So then my wife gets it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, revenge is so sweet because she's like laying on the couch, like, oh my word, I, I'm so sick. <laughs> and you're like, not so much fun when it happens to you. <laughs> so, uh, you know what sound clip I think we underutilize? I think we, yeah, we need more jingles on this show. I'm getting all the, uh, all the, uh, you know, the fun little. 
complaints that I have out of the way. So more jingles. Somebody send us more jingles. Let's see here. What's it? What do I got? Oh, well, we need to do that anyway. Do you know what you have for uh, Gamatria today? <laughs> of course. I can't even believe you ass. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm playing around with my sound my sound effects. Okay, so you got uh, today's show is uh, what one eleven. By the way, I, I I started writing a jingle for this. Now I need somebody to sing it because I'm not gonna do it myself. Uh, show one one one. There must be some significance in that. Should we uh, should we start this segment? Jump into it. Here we go. Yeah. It's Rob's Gematria. Go. Caleb, this is show I think you know. One one one. Whew. There is this some, is a there, magical number. There is some okay. mystical significance right there. Did you know that the Hebrew word Aleph, Aleph Lamid Pei, adds up to one hundred and eleven? No, you say that again, my what? Aleph. Yeah, okay. The word Aleph. Oh. All right. Aleph Aleph Lamid Pei. 111 this is a special show. <laughs> Here's another one. The word Aleph backwards is Pele. Oh. Wait, Wonderful. Wasn't that a soccer player? One of the names of Messiah. Yeah, Pele too. And a, and a, was he from Chile? Where was Pele from? Yeah, Brazil. He was, Brazil. He was South, South America. Yeah, Brazil, somewhere. I think. Pele. Yeah. Wonderful. They both add up to 111. But here's another in terms of mystery. The, uh, the Masve. The Masve is the veil in Exodus 34 that Moshe puts over his face. The veil adds up to 111. Mem, Samek, Vav, He. Here's another mystery, mysterious uh, Hebrew phrase adds up to 111. Mi Ani. Who am I? It's a mystery. See all this stuff? Whew. Then here's a few more for you. Ha'evin Hagdola, the great stone. Here's another. Chacham Gadol, a great sage. And finally, which might be best fitting for our, oh, Brazil. Thank you for that. Pele's from Brazil. Mr. Adam S. from the great state of MT. Here it is, last but not least. Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Babel. Mm. 111. So as you can see, today is a very mystical show. How are we going to end this every every week? I forget. There was a sound bite that we were going to... Was it the alien va- invasion? <laughs> An alien invasion. Is it biblical? Of course it is. You're a legend in your own mind. Your mom goes to college. I think that view is headed for a deep mischief. All right. That's a good ending. Okay. That is a good ending. Uh, that's not even what I was trying to play, but that one works. <laughs> uh, Lots of mystery here. I got to say, okay, now this show, I never want to get into politics on this show because I loathe politics. I absolutely hate politics. But I have to say, I, I do have to say this. Uh, it is... What's the date today? February 3rd. It's February 3rd, 2016, when this show is airing live. Right. And I have to say, I am already sick of it. Was it Groundhog Day the other day? Yes, yesterday. 
I cannot wait for the next election to be over just so that my freaking uh, Facebook news feed no longer has everything about uh, everybody's favorite candidate. Okay, that's my rant for the day. That's the Caleb goes off. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so so, uh, should we jump right in? Are we ready? We're already in, man. Let's just keep swimming. Go. Swimming. Okay. 12 minutes into the show, let's uh, let's really hit it hard with the uh, with the topic of the day. So last week, uh, let's catch everybody up just in case. Now, my mom, you know, she my mom is the one family member that I have that listens to my show. <laughs> I'm not joking. And, and I don't think it's because it's like, oh, my son, he has a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a horrible impression of my mom. My mom, my mom's a wonderful, wonderful lady. She, uh, she but I don't think it's because she, you know, it's like her son and she pities her son. Or anything, you know, like... Oh, it might have started that way. <laughs> it might have started that way. There's no doubt about that. Uh, no, I, I think that it's because, the, you know, she likes some of the content. She likes listening to some of the content. Uh, and who knows? Maybe it is out of pity. Uh, but nonetheless, she listens to the show. She's been having a, a hard time getting uh, getting the show. I told her she had to listen to last week. So if my mom has to listen to last week. If you're tuning in this time and you don't have time to go back and listen to our hour and a half show from last week... Let's catch you up in five minutes. I wish I had like a recap music. My word, we're missing jingles. Somebody get a Casio keyboard and make me some jingles. Okay. Um, so last week we talked about uh, Codex Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus was found at St. Catherine's in on the traditional uh, Mount Sinai in Egypt. Uh, and it was, it was discovered in 1854. The first part of it, the first 53, or 40, I'm sorry, 48 leaves, 43 leaves. Uh, my memory is escaping me. Let me get to my show notes. By the way, the show notes for this week are last week's show notes, too, for those who might be wondering. Um, hang on. 36 pages are at St. Catherine's still. Uh, I think it was 48 leaves. Anyway, the first 48 leaves were found by a, ma- a gentleman named... Constantine von Tischendorf. I've been spelling Tischendorf wrong, by the way. I apologize for that. Um, so Tischendorf goes to St. Catherine's to look for manuscripts. By this point, he's already done a, uh, a uh, translation of the... Uh, what codex was it? Uh, Ephraimi uh, Rescriptus. So he, he had done a translation of that. Still holds 99% accurate today. Unbelievable. So he had already done that, and that, that's a difficult task. Oh, what he had, unbelievable. What he had already done. That involves looking, because you've got a, a palm set where they've taken, they've kind of washed off the ink and tr- you rewrote on it. And so the, he's trying to read that earlier uh, sub-layer, the washed-off layer. Crazy. That's right. Okay, so and and I say he, mad skills. He had also done a. I'm not positive, but I think in 19. Uh, I'm sorry, 19 in 1856. Now my date could be off on this. I could be wrong on this. So somebody correct me. I'm sure someone in the chat room will. Um, but I'm pretty sure that in uh, a year prior to him finding the first leaves of of uh, Sinaiticus, he had actually done. He had actually released a uh, his version of or his translation of Vaticanus. I could be wrong on that. I know that he took his translation of Vaticanus 
back to the Abbey and gave them a copy of it. Okay. So last week we talked about his finding of this uh, codex and, and some of the, the uh, controversy around it. Because uh, Tischendorf came up with quite a, a story that he told, and uh, scholars are split on this, whether or not Tischendorf actually saved this codex from a fiery uh, death, or if uh, that was a story that was made up. And uh, many scholars believe that it, it either was made up by Tischendorf to try to get the codex out of St. Catherine's, or that there was a language barrier. And so he misunderstood that it was, uh, you know, he thought that it was going into the fire. It really wasn't going into the fire. It and was, the, it looked like the same baskets were found. The baskets used to carry kindling were the same baskets that he saw, a same similar basket in the Geniza, I think. That's and correct. And so he, he thought, oh, my goodness. And I think maybe there was a, I, I lean, I give the, towards, you know, Daniel Wallace's account. I don't think we know for sure, but I, I it makes sense that he might be afraid. Oh, my. What if they're burning this stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I, I, I tend not to give uh, Tischendorf the credit that you do, however, Rob. I think that Tischendorf actually made the story up about the fire. He stretched the... I know. think he stretched the truth, and I think he did that to try to get... Uh, I think he realized get, get what he had. traction. Yeah, I think he realized what he had, and I think that he needed to get it out of St. Catharines, and the only way to really convince everybody uh, back there was to say, look, these guys don't even care. You know, they, they don't even realize what they had. They, it was going to go into the fire. Come on. And then you got these people that, you know, back in Russia and everywhere, and, and the Vatican saying, oh, my word, what were they going to do? Yeah, let's get it out of there. Uh, you know, if, if, if someone comes to me today and says, now, obviously, who am I? No one would come to me with a manuscript. But, uh, you know, if I'm the curator of some museum, somebody comes to me and says, look, I, I found a third century manuscript. It was going to get thrown in the fire. Uh, what would I do? I'd swoop in and rescue that manuscript as fast as possible so that the uh, people who had it, di you know, didn't destroy it. Anyway, it's all speculation. No one knows. And so uh, you would think that, okay, so Tischendorf finally gets this manuscript. He gets it out of St. Catharines or most of it at least. Now, more of it was found in 1977 in a scriptorium that was, uh, that, or not, I'm sorry, not a scriptorium, wrong word, in a Geniza that was uh, uncovered during an earthquake at St. Catharines. So back at the same monastery. Same monastery, and we find more of this, uh, of this co codex. More of the codex. Okay. Now, why is this codex even significant, Caleb? Why do we care? Yeah, so good, good question. Why do we care what happened in the middle of the 1800s? Yes. With, uh, so, some Greek fragments from Egypt. So this codex holds to the Eastern texts, which is uh, the uh, Egyptian texts or uh, texts that come that were probably penned in the, in Egypt somewhere. Uh, Vaticanus is another one of those texts, and uh, they are different than the majority texts. That's right? correct. They're so different the, from Texas Receptus. So they they suggest so for a person in the middle of eighteen hundreds who reads the King James. Yes. And and is an advocate of Textus Receptus, and has that part of their doctrinal statement. Maybe all of a sudden, someone claims, "Oh, by the way, I found an entire New Testament in Greek that's you know fifteen hundred years old." And guess what? It has some different readings than your Textus Receptus. Right. That, that's exactly so, right. So someone could have a, a crisis, a kind of a crisis of faith. Wait a minute. I thought King James was the inspired word of God, and now you're telling me you're pulling the rug out from under that. Yeah, and not only that, but uh, okay, so 
this it, it would be one thing if there if it was one text that was found okay so if you had just sinaiticus found it's called sinaiticus because it was found on the traditional site of sinai mount sinai. I, I looked it up it actually is mount sinai oh oh good okay good wikipedia tell you that there's some fragments of uh <laughs> broken uh tablets of stone with ah, Hebrew. yes must be the 10 words yes of course um, okay, so uh, let's give you. A, so not a lot of people know that. Though. This this is a big deal, though. Uh, this is a big deal because all of a sudden you get this new reading. Okay, and then and then what comes along? You also have uh, this Ephraimi, which uh, is fragmentary uh, at best. Uh, but then you have uh, Alexandrinus. Alexandrinus is a uh, is another text. However, it's missing certain parts, like the Gospels. Alexandrinus does not have the Gospels in them. Vaticanus, rather, uh, named after the Vatican from where it has been held for the Lord only knows how long. Uh, Vaticanus is a much more complete text. And it also has the, the different readings that uh, Sinaiticus does as well. Now, of course, this comes into conspiracy theory uh, when we get to the King James only people. And we'll talk about that. In just a second. First, let's uh, just review a couple of the facts of Codex Sinaiticus that we do know for sure. And they are Codex Sinaiticus is the oldest known codex. Codex meaning it's in book form of the apostolic scriptures. That is the New Testament dating to the 4th century. That's the 300s for those who might be mixed up on that kind of thing. It is written in Koine Greek and has the complete New Testament along with the Septuagint. That is the Greek Old Testament. It also, the Greek translation, that is, of the Old Testament. It, all, it also originally included the Apocrypha, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Shepherd of Hermas. That will become important in our discussion here in a little bit. It was written in the southeastern Mediterranean. It, had sev it has 740 leaves or 1,480 pages written by three hands. I believe four now that I've written uh, read another book, one being the most experienced in taking on the bulk of the work. Currently, the Codex is housed in several different places, 86 pages in Leipzig, Germany. And those are, uh, that's where Tischendorf first took those, uh, the, the, the initial pages that he took out of St. Catharines, went to Leipzig. I have been to Leipzig now twice, and I have, I have yet to see these pages, something I will certainly do the next time I go to Leipzig. There are 694 pages in London. Uh, in the museum there in London, portions of eight pages in St. Petersburg, and some or all of, I'm not sure what the question is on that, of 36 pages, still at St. Catharines at the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, being made up of originally 365 animal skins. Okay. So there you have it. You should be somewhat caught up. would have cost a lot of money to produce that. Actually, that's what my note says. This manuscript's cost of production, according to one estimate, would have been the equivalent of a lifetime of work. Uh, which is one reason, now we won't get into this, but uh, now Constantine, he actually uh, made a decree that there would be five or six copies of each uh, what uh, translation, I guess, not even translation, but uh, family of, of uh, tradition when it came to the different codex, uh, different manuscripts. Uh, so five to six of them each made and then sent out to the major, uh, the major uh, uh, Catholic monasteries and whatnot. Uh, 
And so the, some scholars for uh, a while hypothesized that because of the sheer cost of this manuscript and the work that was done at the scriptorium for this manuscript, that this possibly could have been one of the ones that would have been uh, paid for by Constantine. The reason why is because why would it, you know, what average Joe is having this made by a scriptorium or even an organization uh, to think that maybe a, a, a synagogue or something like that would have paid for this. It is possible. There's no doubt about it. Well, if you, we look at the canon, what, what's, I'm sorry, not synagogue. I said synagogue. I'm in church. What's Keep part going. of the, the, what we call the old Testament collection. We've got, you know, wisdom of Solomon, Ben Sirah is in there. We've got Tobit. We've got Judith. We've got First Maccabees. We've got Fourth Maccabees. I'm sure it's one, two, three, and Fourth Maccabees was in is in Sinaiticus. I think it's only first and fourth. But in any event, maybe you're right. I'm sorry. But in any event, we we've got these other books in there that are treated as part of this resource, right? It's huge. It's a huge, huge. And we've got a lot of money. What you got to pay these guys? These guys who are writing this have to have to be able to eat, right, and sleep, and they have to have their provisions to sit there and do this kind of work. Plus, they had to have the training. I mean, the it's it's written. Actually, we're going to get into some of their training. In a way too. to see how. I mean, it's legible. It's tough. In our just as a footnote, last night in our second year Greek class. We're reading in Romans 5, and there's a couple places where we pulled up some images of the Codex Sinaiticus so we could zoom in and look at how uh, some of the text issues with Romans chapter 5. And it was really cool. We can see, you know, how, uh, and it's very legible. It's all, it's uncial. It's all uppercase Greek letters. Yeah, that's right. But there's no spaces between Yeah, there's no words. space. That's the weird part. It's all, it all runs together. You kind of have to know what it is that you're looking at for a first time reader they it it would be pretty tough i think so there's a lot of background training required to even work with this text and by the way because of the project it's called the project the project uh Sinaiticus is a group of scholars who now have taken all have gone to all the different places taken high res uh, photographs of Codex Sinaiticus. It's all online. You can find it online. You can search anywhere in, in Codex Sinaiticus. You can zoom in as uh, you know to huge, uh, you know to huge amounts of, of zoom to be to able to great to great zoomness. There you go. Okay, so uh, n now let's get to the controversy. There was a controversy though, so uh, we should say a little bit about Tischendorf. Tischendorf is this guy who's got all these these great things under his belt now, these translations. He's becoming this well-known, this well-known name uh, in, in Europe and uh, as kind of uh, the first Indiana Jones, really. He, he really was the first Indiana Jones uh, on the scene to go and find these things that needed to be in a museum. This belongs in a museum. I wish I, I should have pulled a clip of that. Anyway, uh, and, and so he's going around. He's got this huge name for himself. And then there's this other guy. And his name is either Simo, uh, Simonides or Simonides. Simonides, yeah, Simonides. Uh, so it depends how you want to say it, and you're going to hear it different ways throughout this show. He comes along. He's known a, a little bit more as a uh, as a shyster. He's, uh, you know, he's he's a very good uh, calligrapher, and it seems as though he knows his uh, his Greek 
pretty well. He produced several forgeries or uh, what some people claim to be forgeries. He also produced, it seems like he also produced a couple of, of finds of his own, of real manuscripts. Uh, in fact, one of the things that happened, now uh, I have not actually researched this entire story to see uh, the, the, the full of it. However, apparently one of the things that happened is that uh, Simonides comes forward with a uh, manuscript in, I believe it was uh, 1853, comes f- forward with a manuscript of the Shepherd of Hermas. And Tischendorf says, no, this is a fake. This, he, he did this. And, uh, and there was no known, uh, apparently there was no known Greek manuscript of the Shepherd of Hermas extant at that time. Uh, they thought it was lost to antiquity. And then a year later, of course, Tischendorf comes, uh, comes with this find of, of Sinaiticus, which, which has the Shepherd of Hermas in it. Apparently, uh, Tischendorf then retracts his uh, assertion that it was a forgery that Simonides had brought forward. And in fact, uh, that it was a real manuscript. Okay. So there's bad blood between these two guys. These guys are like, I don't know, what's a good rivalry? Uh, you know, like the Giants against the Jets. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's a rivalry. Or or uh, Newton versus Manning. There you go. Simonides. Super Bowl plug. There you go. So, yeah. <laughs> Simone- no, that's not really a rivalry, though. It's not, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Simonides is, is certainly not happy about uh, Tischendorf. He, Tischendorf is, is stealing the limelight all the time. And uh, not only that, but he, he's, he's just finding all these great finds. And at this point, you, after a while, you have the Vatican now backing him financially because he's finding all this great stuff. Simonides is not happy. So what does Simonides do? He says, you know what? That Sinaiticus that uh, Tischendorf found, that's a fake. I wrote it. Let's listen to what Wallace has to say about Simonides. All this sounded too good to be true, and to some it was. In particular, one Constantine Simonides, a Greek man whom Tischendorf had exposed as a forger, although a brilliant forger, decided to burst Tischendorf's bubble. Writing in the British magazine The Guardian on the 3rd of September, 1862, Simonides claimed that he penned Sinaiticus in 1840. He created quite a stir. Several publications declared that Tischendorf had lied on the basis of Simonides' letter. They were all too ready to condemn him. The reason? It was simply too fantastic to believe that a complete New Testament had been found, let alone such an old one, and that it differed markedly from the Byzantine text. There are some today, in fact, who still cling to the notion that Simonides was indeed the forger of the manuscript, in large measure because they don't care for the fact that such an old manuscript would part company from the Textus Receptus. Aha, uh-huh, and there it is. Okay, so... Uh, Dr. Wallace, uh, a, I would consider him a, an acquaintance, and uh, I actually have his, his phone number in my phone right now. I, uh, it's like as close as uh, superstar status as I get. Anyway, uh, so, <laughs> so Dr. Wallace ta- tells us a little bit about Sim- – I apologize. My phone's going off. Hang on. Beep, 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 beep. I apologize. Okay, so uh, Simonides comes out. He says, yeah, I did this. Now, here's the thing. Is that there, uh, as you heard Dr. Wallace say, there are still people today who believe that Simonides actually made Codex Sinaiticus. Let's listen to one. Now, the, this whole show, last week's show and this week's show, 
all came about because uh, one of, uh, I think a listener of ours, maybe, or maybe just uh, someone who was inquiring, uh, came and said, hey, I think that this uh, gentleman has some great points. I, I believe what he is saying. And have you thought about this? Okay, so it should be noted that this is coming. Now, Chris Pinto, who is the person that you're going to hear from here next, Chris Pinto, he has his own radio show, <laughs> Noise of Thunder, I think that is. Is that what Chris... I don't know. Uh, Rob is too... I didn't, ra- I didn't, so, I didn't so, look it up. I should say that Rob is uh, too enthralled in, in trying to name <laughs> arch nemesis of each other. I'm enjoying in the, other in the chat room. Uh, let's see here. Wow, you guys really went on a rant here. <laughs> let's see here. Edison and Tesla, Ben and Jerry, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Rob and Caleb. Bush and Hussein, Clinton and the FBI, Hillary and Truth. Wow, uh, ISIS and ISIS, the Egyptian. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Let's see here, Adam. Uh, it's just being silly. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. I'm just trying to let Bill our listeners Gates know. And the Apple dude. Uh yeah, Steve Jobs. Okay, so now now that we've successfully beaten with uh, to death. The idea of uh, arch nemesis and rivalry. Can we move on now? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm pretty sure that Chris Pinto uh, he he has never labeled himself a KGV only. Uh, however, he is. I'm I'm gonna call him KJV KJV only uh, because obviously he's that's what he's fighting for. Listen to what Chris Pinto has to say about Simonides, though. I'm not trying to pick on Chris Pinto here. It's just going to happen inevitably because I think I disagree with them. Here we go. Now, this whole subject came up for me uh, when I was working on my documentary series uh, on the history of the Bible. And we got into part two, which is called Tears Among the Wheat. And that's where I came across the story of Simonides. By the way, hang on, i got to stop it right here. Tears so, so, so you can just make a movie, right? And not well, like No, here, okay, no, no. It should be noted that Chris Pinto actually is a documentarian. He's made several movies, and actually, this tears among now. I'm I'm not going to comment on whether or not I uh, like his his documentaries or think that he. Uh, I will say that it seems as though he's coming from quite a biased position in his documentaries. He chooses a side and goes with the side. Okay. By the way, tears among the wheat is part two of a documentary series. Part two is three hours long in and of itself. And I watched it, by the way. And I watched it. Is that before or after you got sick? Uh, right, right, right before, uh, right before I got sick. Uh oh. Yeah. See, there you go. Uh, here we go. Okay, then we're gonna keep going with Chris Pinto here. And uh, I remember when I first came across it, uh, I thought what most people thought. I thought that uh, Simonides was a forger, that he was a liar, that he was a trickster. Right. But then as I looked a little bit deeper, mm-hmm. um, I began to have questions. In 2008, I went to the British Library, and I was able to interview the curators there, Dr. Scott McKendrick and mm-hmm. Dr. Juan Garces, mm-hmm. who are in charge of the Codex Sinaiticus project, which is uh, the project where they, they have most of the manuscript there in their possession. The project. And they've been scanning the pages up to the Internet. Now they've launched the uh, website several years ago, but I remember talking to them about the history of the Codex, Mm. and they were somewhat vague, but they did say that they wanted to come up with a full, agreed-upon history, Mm. and it sounded very interesting at the time that they they worded it that way. (laughs) 
And when I saw the history that they posted, I thought it was somewhat politically correct. Um, but here's what they say on their website. They say this. Uh, they say, quote, events concerning the history of the Codex Sinaiticus mm -hmm. from 1844 to this very day are not fully known. Hence, they are susceptible to widely divergent interpretations and recountings that are evaluated differently as to their form and essence. Okay, now Chris Pinto is going to take this to mean that they're not denying Simonides. To me, what I hear from that website statement is, we can neither confirm nor deny that this was given or stolen from St. Catharines. What I hear in, in the statement on the website from the project and from the curators of this manuscript is not, oh, Simonides might have made this. There's a possibility here. What I hear them saying is, we're not going to weigh in on whether or not Tischendorf stole this from St. Catharines, whether it was actually going to be thrown into a fire, whether or not, you know, whether or not it was being mistreated as a codex at St. Catharines, and whether or not Tischendorf saved this manuscript. We're not commenting on it. That's what I hear. What do you hear? No, that's, that's basically it. I agree. Okay, but that's not what Chris Pinto thinks. Chris Pinto is now going to take this to mean that, uh, that uh, these curators might think that, that uh, Simonides actually wrote this code. But are they aware of this, this, of this earthquake in the 70s and the discovery of more pages from the codex? Yeah, but that was 100 and some odd years later. No, I know, but it shows how would, how would uh, Simonides smuggled fragments from this book that he says he wrote to eat to this monastery. Now, I actually read when they believe that. Now, they, they've pinned down specific dates of when that, that uh, Geniza uh, actually was created, and I don't know when it was created. Was it created after? Well, the, here's the idea, though. What, what, what we're being led to believe, we have, we have to conclude that somehow Simonides, when he, let's, let's just say, let's explore the idea that he wrote this manuscript. Yeah. And he had the money to pay for all this, to, to make it look ancient, to have a couple other scribes that he oversaw, um, and uh, he had the time to do this. And then he took some of the pages, smuggled them to Egypt or to this monastery and tucked them away somewhere so that they would be discovered way later. Well, and actually your point is well taken because if the, uh, if the, if the monks now realize that, uh, that Tischendorf had in their minds swindled the, the Codex Sinaiticus away from them and sold it and basically, uh, got it out by giving it to the the czar or whatever. Kind of cheated them out of it. Or cheated whatever. them out of it. If they found other, even if they boxed up the Geniza uh, after the 1850s, which I, I don't think they did, but even if they did, why would they take the extra pages from Sinaiticus knowing now what they had and put them in there? Doesn't make no. any sense. Okay, so, uh, no, but let's, let's go back to this clip by Pinto. Pinto, uh, this clip was taken... Which can be found. So, so Pinto's claim is that Simonides really did, really did write this. Okay, so uh, yeah, basically what Pinto's claim is, and, and uh, I should tell you when I where I got this clip from, but uh, first I'll tell you this. Uh, here's Pinto's claim, okay, that the Vatican 
that the Jesuits, here's his overall claim, the Jesuits, the Catholic Jesuits came up with this plot. They're ticked off about the Reformation and this idea of sola scriptura, that the power has been taken away from the Catholic Church and now put onto the scriptures, and the evangelicals are now uh, taking people away from the Catholic Church. They're upset about this, and so what are they going to do? They're going to create different codices that disagree with the Texas Receptus, like Vaticanus, which happens happens to be found in the Vatican. This is significant for Pinto and other KGV onlyers, who say that basically the Catholic Church forged this this codex and made it different than uh, this Texas Receptus. And of course, St. Catherine's being a Catholic monastery, uh, you know, Tischendorf had this plan. Uh, he was going to create this codex for for a uh, for the Tsar of Russia, and uh, he ends up showing it and having some people help him at St. Catherine's, and uh, he comes up with this manuscript. And of course, he leaves out certain parts, and the Catholic Church really likes this. Why do they like this? Because this is another witness to uh, a text that looks a lot like Vaticanus. And now they can use these two texts to say, say, see, you can't trust your Bible. Because these are Jesuits. Yes. And the Jesuits are, have, con- there's a conspiracy, a Jesuit conspiracy. That's right. It actually looks a lot like the, they say that there's a Jewish conspiracy, some people, right, to, to take over the world, to rule the world. Yeah, I guess so. It's, it parallels that. It's kind of the same thing, except it's the Jesuits that are behind it. Well, you know, and if that's the truth, then I guess Bernie Sanders will win the uh, election since he's the first Jewish guy to ever, you know, he's Jewish. He's a puppet. <laughs> okay. Puppet for the Illuminati. There, there you go. And the Jesuits. Okay. So anyway, so Pinto, so Pinto believes this is a Jesuit uh, conspiracy. Here's the deal, though, is that this clip is taken from a debate between Chris Pinto, who's never done a debate before. He's never done a, been in a de- debate format. Who does he go up against? Dr. James White, like the bare-knuckle boxing champion of religious debate. Serious business. I mean, James White is a, a, a formidable opponent for anyone, uh, even uh, Michael Brown and others. But uh, Chris Pinto, oh, man, this was, uh, I, I got to say, the guy has guts getting into the ring with uh, the likes of, of Dr. James White, um, especially on an issue like this. So why does this matter to Pinto? Well, let's listen. Now, this is where his KJV-only uh, views kind of come into view. And so this is what James Farrar says. Uh, he says it's unfortunate that the matter was never settled at the time that the claim was made. And he goes on from there. Uh, and I generally agree with that conclusion. Now, the reason I think this is important is because we have, in modern times, for the last 150 years, we have textual critics like Dr. James White, like Dr. Daniel Wallace at Dallas Theological Seminary, who question historic, traditional readings from the Bible. Okay, so this is going to go on for another minute, and I don't think we need to listen to this. We've already pretty much told you what he's going to say here. The interesting thing about this clip, however, is that uh, Pinto, who has no training in textual criticism, he has no training in the uh, in the biblical languages, and he has no uh, uh, training in codex comp- uh, uh, compilation. Uh, this is like... Uh... I think, like, like you know, the whole Kabbalah or Metatron is like a thorn in our side. 
I wonder if this guy is like kind of a thorn in the side of Daniel Wallace. I don't think so, man. Daniel Wallace, and, and that's just it, is that, is that Pinto, now bless his heart, he, he really, uh, you know, he, he's got a zeal for the Lord, and, and it seems like he's uh, doing some good work for the kingdom, there's no doubt about it. On this on this issue, though, uh, he boldfacedly challenges two of the of the probably one of the better apologists in the world today, Dr. James White, and by far, in my opinion, the greatest living uh, New Testament uh, manuscript scholar in the world today, Dr. Daniel Wallace, and he says, "Oh, you guys are wrong," which to me is funny. So let's uh, let's listen to Pinto's view. Now I got a bunch of different clips here, so uh, stop me anytime. Most of them are Pinto, and we'll just kind of. Uh, but some of the some of these actually will get us into some good discussion about certain aspects of Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, the first thing I want to do now, I think I already covered this too, but I want to listen to just a hair of this to see if uh, we did cover all of this. This is when he's talking about the Vatican. By the last twelve verses of Mark, which detail the resurrection of Christ. Those verses are missing. And it just so happens that they're also missing in Codex Vaticanus. The Vatican's version of uh, the Greek New Testament and Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Now what's interesting, now I believe, this is my theory. I've not yet been able to prove it. My theory is that Sinaiticus was manipulated by either, and I can only speculate, Tischendorf, the Jesuits, Tischendorf's friends in Rome, whoever, that was a part of this. And part of what they wanted to do was to use Sinaiticus to confirm the Codex Vaticanus. Okay, so this is the, this is the controversy, of course. Uh, so, does, Okay, does Pinto read Greek at all? No, I don't believe he does. Missing ding. Okay. I'm sorry I was getting ready with it. Yes, I'm missing the ding, but that's because I was getting ready with my suspense we, music. Actually, we want that. We want the like. You know, I don't know what happened to that. I got the buzzer somewhere. I got to find it again. I'll get it. I'll get it by next week, okay? Um, okay, so now this is where the, this next clip, uh, this is Pinto again, okay? But uh, this clip is actually going to bring me into uh, the reading of this book. This is a very interesting book. This is called Codex Sinaiticus, New Perspectives on the Ancient Biblical Manuscript, edited by Scott McKendrick, David Parker, Amy um, Myshar, Myshral, Myshral, M-Y-S-H-R-A-L-L, I'm sorry for butchering your name if you ever listen to the show, and Killian O'Hogan. Very interesting read, by the way. And I also, uh, just a shameless plug for this one, too, this was actually put out by uh, the The Project. Codex Sinaiticus, D.C. Parker, the story of the world's oldest but, Bible. Okay, yeah, but Caleb, I bet neither one of those have Pinto in their bibliography. Those, that is Jesuit propaganda. Well, and actually, it's interesting. You I say, don't know how much you spent on those. Those look like nice books. They are nice books, and I didn't spend anything. They're my dad's. But um, okay, okay, let's. Someone, someone got robbed. Okay, let's let's listen to Pinto's. Uh, I don't even remember that this is. I just know it's a setup for reading this passage out of this book. It's called Best Evidence. Here we go. Now, the Shepherd of Hermas was ah, yes. a big issue because in order for somebody to have been able to create the Codex Sinaiticus, mm-hmm. he would have had to have had a copy of the Shepherd of Hermas. And I touched and on And the this remarkable earlier. thing about that is that at that point in history, no Western scholar had ever seen a copy of the Shepherd of Hermas in Greek. Mm. It was unknown. They thought it had been lost to antiquity. 
And so here, this guy Simonides presents a copy of the Shepherd at the University of Leipzig in 1855 and 56. And then, what do you know, another copy that seems to match shows up in 1859. And at one point, Simonides challenged Tischendorf. Okay, so basically, uh, he, he goes on. But, but the point is, is that uh, now, granted, I think it's true that uh, after... After a while, uh, Tischendorf actually said, okay, maybe this is a real manuscript, and once he was able to compare. But listen to how Pinto talks about the, the, the way that this... Uh, now, okay, so he's saying that... Uh, that uh, uh, what's his name? Simonides, sorry. Simonides. He's saying that Simonides was the one who penned uh, the Shepherd of Hermas. Okay, and I will admit that in the debate between... Uh, Pinto and White. White doesn't really address the Shepherd of Hermas issue that comes up. Now, there's problems with this whole thing anyway. But uh, the point is, is uh, that Pinto believes that Sine uh, that Simonides at was the one who penned and wrote down not only the Shepherd of Hermas, but specifically he specifically mentions the Shepherd of Hermas here in this next clip. He's going to to tell us how the manuscript was written by Simonides from Simonides' own words. Listen to this. Now let's take a minute and talk about the corrections in Codex Sinaiticus. In reality, Simonides identified himself, his uncle, Dionysius the scribe, and um, Calistratus, who was another monk, who all four, in a documented way, are said to have added many corrections to the manuscript. Many corrections. But uh, during the Q&A, maybe we'll be able to talk more about that, because the whole corrections thing is a mystery that needs to be addressed. The idea of Simonides as a 19-year-old, he was known for having this enigmatic talent as a calligrapher. Okay, so basically, here's what's going on. Now, I want to lay this out so no one's, no one's confused. So basically what happens is you have Simonides say, look, I wrote this entire manuscript. Now, I had my uncle and these two other monks, they came along, they made corrections. And this is in Simonides' uh, explanation. This is how you have the corrections of the scribes in the margins. Sometimes they'll actually make corrections right there. You know, you can see where scribes uh, actually wrote over certain things uh, to correct them in, in the making of this codex, okay? There's, uh, there's correction notes and so on. So what uh, Simonides says is that, okay, uh, all these corrections were made by these three other people. However, I'm the one who wrote the codex. Let's now turn to this wonderful book. Now, originally, it should be noted that, uh, that uh, many people believe that uh, this codex was written by three hands. Uh, this is from chapter 10 in this book. The trans quote, the transcription of every extant page of Codex Sinaiticus for the digitization project has allowed for a re-evaluation of the entire manuscript. Since Milne and Skeet's work on the Codex, it has been widely accepted that there were only three scribes, A, B, and D. Tischendorf's scribe three was, uh, I'm sorry, Scribe C was abandoned after Milne and Skeet approved the work of Scribe C w could be divided between Scribes A and D. Is everyone still with me now? So originally Tischendorf came along, he said there was four scribes. There was A, B, C, and D. And these two guys, uh, uh, Skeet and Milne, they said, no, no, no. 
A and B did the work of of uh, C. So there really was no scribe C. Okay. And then there was D. However, I'm going on with the quote here. However, during the transcription of the prophets and the shepherd of Hermas for the Codex Sinaiticus project, certain features were noticed, which suggest the possibility of a fourth scribe at work. There is a strong case to be made that the work of scribe B should be split into two, scribe B1 for Isaiah and scribe B2 for the prophets and the shepherd of Hermas. Okay, this is important now because you have uh, the, the, the paleography of this is is really fascinating, and they show uh, the differences between the scribes. Basically, what you have is it, when the scribes are being uh, trained, you have different schools that these tri- that these scribes are being trained in. So uh, it would be like today if you have the school of Smith and the school of Jones. Okay, well, uh, if if I'm a uh, a scribe of the school of Jones and Rob is a scribe of the school of Smith. Uh, his is going to look different because it's a different style than mine. However, if my friend Joe Schmau is at the same school as me, he's going to learn the same kind of writing that I am. It's going to look almost identical to mine. And this is why they had a hard time distinguishing between scribe B1 and scribe B2. Is everybody still with me? You with me here, Rob? I'm sorry, I was... Of course, of course, of course you were. Okay, I'm going to keep going since nobody's listening to me. Okay, so Scribe D, they know that Scribe D did the bulk of the work. They they believe that Scribe D was basically the uh, the The overseer, the overseer, and the reason why is because you have Scribe D correcting Scribe B's B1 and B2's work, but you never have Scribe B1 and B2 correcting D's work. Okay. So if Simonides was the one who wrote the Shepherd of Hermas for Codex Sinaiticus, this is where uh, the the Simonides uh, argument really begins to degrade. Because Simonides says that he wrote the entire text for Codex Sinaiticus. However, we know for a fact that there was three scribes and most likely four scribes. And that the person who wrote the Shepherd of Hermas actually did uh, third in line of the most of work at the work. Scribe D and Scribe A did the bulk of the work, and Scribe B1 and B2 did the least amount of the work. <clears throat> and yet Chris Pinto can't, uh, you know, he says that the people that helped helped with the notes, not with the actual writing of the text. Okay, so let's listen to what Dr. White has to say about his objections to the textual criticism issues of Simonides. Well, did they ever interview back then when he, when he was making this claim? Did Simonides produce these other guys? Say, yeah, here's here's where we worked. Here's where we did it. No, uh, but he did say that there were there was a monk that he gave the the codex to, and uh, actually, I think it was at one of the end of the uh, one of the audios that I didn't uh, I didn't uh, play. But the point is, you know, and Pinto says, why didn't they follow up? They could have just followed up. It would have been way easy to find these people, and. In my opinion, the reason why is because the claims by Simonides were so outlandish that there was no reason to even follow up. You know, it's like the people who say that the earth is flat today. Do I really need to go make a huge manhunt to try to track down the the astronauts who have been in space and all this kind of stuff? No. I just don't believe these people. Their claims are just too outrageous. 
And it's the same with Simonides. And we'll get to some of the other reasons why this is pretty much impossible that Simonides could have written this. Let's go to James White and his textual criticism issues with this. Let me give two examples, one drawn from Scrivener and one drawn from my own studies. Scrivener points to Matthew 1430, where all later manuscripts have the term boisterous after the term wind, yet Sinaiticus omits the term boisterous, as does Vaticanus, though it is inserted in Vaticanus in a later hand. The reader was not, uh, the reading was not known, as Alexandrus does not contain this portion of Matthew, and no Moscow Bible lacks the phrase. Scrivener comments, quote, one example will illustrate our meaning as well as a thousand which the student may readily find for himself in the following collation, end quote. That is, there are literally thousands of places where Sinaiticus contains readings confirmed by later discoveries, discoveries unknown even in Scrivener's time in the papyri, that would have been completely unknown to Simonides or anyone living in his day. To attribute these readings to mere chance is, of course, inconceivable. The second text I will present, and we'll ask Mr. Pinto to explain, might be a bit better known to our audience. In John 1.18, we have a vitally important Christological text where Jesus is identified as the monogamous Theos, the unique God who exegetes, explains, makes known the Father. The reading of the later manuscripts is only begotten Son, not using the term God of Jesus here. Codex Vaticanus, and may I point out I know of no evidence of Simonides even knowing of this manuscript, let alone having access to it, has the reading unique God at John 1.18. P75 and P66, the two earliest papyri copies of John, likewise have this reading. But they had not been discovered in Simonides' day. So where did he get the Snap. reading? Alexandrinus has son. The Moscow Bibles have son. And even more compelling is the fact that Sinaiticus contains a correction here, where the first corrector inserted the definite article before monogonase. <laughs> this is important because it shows the reading of God is indeed that of the exemplar, not a mere scribal error in Sinaiticus. Mr. Pindo needs to explain to us where Simonides got these readings, which just happened to coincide with the papyri, which had yet to even be discovered. Dude, why would you go up against White in something like this? I mean, why? I don't understand. You know, everybody said, everybody except for the KJV only ears, and, and even they wouldn't play this uh, in certain places. Uh, everybody said that White just slaughtered on this. Um, anyway... So White brings up some very interesting uh, textual criticism issues, which are that the, the translations that, that uh, Sinaiticus have seem to don't they don't follow any specific text that would have been used at the time by Simonides. Okay, but Pinto has an answer for this. What is that answer? His answer is that uh, is that Simonides actually wrote this on uh, Mount uh, where is it? Athos. Mount Athos. Oh yeah. In Greece, yeah. In Greece, a beautiful monastery, by the way. His uncle was there, and that he uh, that he uh, was using three texts, uh, three manuscripts. So basically, what he was using was he was using um, the Russian Bible. What was the other one? Uh, I forget. There was another one. Well, let's ask. Uh, let's let's see what what uh, what Pinto says. What were the source texts? If Simonides, this is the question that's posed. If Simonides actually wrote Codex Sinaiticus, what were the source texts used to create this translation, or this Greek translation, whatever you want to say? Probably most importantly is the textual basis that was used according to Simonides' own testimony. This is uh, where I think Dr. White has overlooked what Simonides himself said. It wasn't just the Moscow Bible and Codex Alexandrinus. It was, the, it was an edition of the Old and New Testament of the Moscow Bible that was collated with Codex Alexandrinus and 
an ancient Syriac codex, and three additional unnamed manuscripts of ancient character. So you had there, you had six manuscripts in total. Three of them were unnamed and have never been identified. They were all used for the textual basis of the manuscript that Simonides described. And so, so what would you have this guy's word if you were... Okay, yeah. So, so the point is, and, and, and White slaughters him on this, of course, but the point is this. There's, there's multiple points on this. First of all, if uh, Simonides is actually ticked off that Tischendorf is getting all the credit here and the limelight's on, on uh, Tischendorf and not on him, why doesn't he just go get the ancient manuscripts that he used to create a, uh, a translation and present them? If he brought forth three ancient manuscripts and said, look, I have three third century manuscripts that are intact. What would have, uh, I mean, what would the public have said? Oh, my word, this is, a, this is amazing, right? He would have been right up there with Tischendorf at that point, but he doesn't. He doesn't produce that. Another issue that we have to look at, and this, this is, uh, I mean, this is from the very beginning. This is probably the, the, first, uh, uh, the first thing that, that should have been uh, noted. How many, how many leaves were there originally? 750 leaves? Yeah, it was a lot. Okay, okay, so so what Simonides uh, has claimed is that he found, he found 740 leaves, 740 leaves that had never been written on before from the third century, from the fourth century. So from the fourth century all the way up to the 19th century, you had you just had this. It was like a giant notebook that was nobody had written in. Nobody had written in <laughs> seven hundred and forty uh, leaves. Well, it wasn't bound. It would not have been able to be bound because these were written. Yeah, yeah. Untouched. It would have just been like a stack of paper. It would be like you know somewhere yeah, just, in the just corner. hanging out, just hanging out. Whereas the scribe, all, everywhere else, scribes have to like wash off other things to find something to write on. They have to like take old texts and scrape them off to use them. Well, and I think Ephraim Rescriptus shows us that that the scribes were in great need of fresh, you know, fresh parchment. It's expensive. It's It's super expensive. And you're telling me that even in a monastery, you're saying that in a monastery for that long, you have this, you have 740 leaves of unpenned parchment, never been touched. Just hanging out, and then and somehow he's convinced these guys we're going to take these. These I know these yeah, have been sitting here this. for fourteen hundred years, but you know what? I think it's the time has come. I've arrived. We are now going to write, yeah. on, and they're all like, "Okay, let's do it." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, 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 and it's not even them. It's not like, hey, I know you guys. The monks remember- are like. The you, prophecy is true. The young, it, the young man. It's it, yeah. It's not even like, hey, come help me write a codex. No, no, no. According to uh, to Simonides, it's hey, you guys, thanks for watching these for me for fourteen hundred years. I'm gonna take them now. I'm gonna write on this. I'll let you make some corrections when I'm done. Uh, absolutely rid- ridiculous. Listen to how White responds to uh, to this assertion that there were three unnamed manuscripts. The discussion of the textual material is extremely important to me. So what we just had presented to us was this theory. Well, yes, he used Moscow Bible, and he used Codex Alexandrus, but he also used three other manuscripts, and we have no idea what they are, and maybe they contain all these different readings that anticipate the papyri, but they've never been found, so we can never really disprove it. Um, okay, uh, there you go. There's, there's your answer. 
Uh, <laughs> is that really how historical inquiry is done? Uh, where are these manuscripts? Uh, can they, you know, what did they contain? How would, they, how would these three manuscripts anticipate the wide and divergent ranges of readings that Sinaiticus contains that are also found in the papyri? Uh, does that mean that these were purely early Alexandrian manuscripts? They must have been extremely ancient, yeah. even earlier than Sinaiticus itself. They would be massive treasures. Where are they today? Uh, okay, and this is, how does that skilled. answer the question? Dr. Yeah. White is very skilled, uh, because here's the thing. <laughs> At what point, okay, because we're all human, okay? I know we're, we're, uh, we're giving people the benefit of doubt that their believers are part of the body of Messiah, and we know that we are to love each other, right? We're to love one another ourselves. But at some level, is he having the thought, what you're an I... idiot. <laughs> I mean, oh, of course. Like, but, but he's not. But he's saying, you know what? He's staying focused on the merits of the argument. And this is a good thing. Well, know? I'll tell you this. There, there, are, some, there are some points where, uh, where White kind of cracks in this debate. He basically says, uh, you know, uh, at one point he's like, are you? And this was a... This is a, an excellent question. He asks Pinzo, are you skilled in uh, text collation? And Pinzo says, no, of course not. Like, you know, why would you even ask me that? Of course you know that that's not true. But the point is this. It's one thing to be a calligrapher. The time to write this, uh, to write this codex, they, they think that uh, even with the four scribes, it would have taken months up to a year Think of the planning, just to have just the planning, yeah. The planning, the layout. They need to, they they need to somehow pay these guys. You know, and, these and guys then, have to survive for the year. And then not only that, but D scribe D goes back and and reads everything that the other scribes have done and corrects where corrections need to be made. So not only have they written this whole thing, they've copied it off of somewhere. Okay. And they've they've created this could have taken some people think it could have taken us these professionals in a scriptorium, four professionals in a scriptorium up to a year to create this codex. And that's one reason that some people think that that uh, it was it was, uh, uh, you know, it was basically Then they had to make it look old. They had to make the ink. Right. How did they make ink? Well, the guys in the scriptorium didn't. The guys in the scriptorium were making a new book. You know, uh, For, if we if we take, oh, if we take Simonides, yeah, yeah, okay. But the point is this. But that's true that that this guy is arguing that it was the Jesuits produced it, really. Well, or they it, or they're produced, they're behind it. Yeah, and so right. so, but here's the here's the issue. It would have taken four professionals up to a year in a scriptorium to create this codex. That's just a single copy from one other text. If we bring in the idea of collation of six texts to try to create a new translation out of six texts, the time frame of this. Now, keep in mind, this is the claim is that Simonides did this. You it, have to make a decision at every, every single, single word. point. And, and, yeah. and the claim is, is that Simonides claimed to do this in 1840. He was 19 years old in 1840. If this is true, does that mean he do, he already knew how to read Syriac and uh, so he knew? Yes, and and apparently, well, and and apparently that's actually that's actually true is that he was a very learned uh, uh, scribe basically, but not he was not he was not learned in the collation. He was a he was a uh, he was a calligrapher. He knew Greek, 
and so on and so forth. Well, he was Greek, right? Greek was his first language. Was his Greek his main language? No, I believe uh, I believe German was. Oh, okay. But the point is, is that if you bring collation of two texts into this, it would have up the it would have up the ante to maybe another year. You bring three texts into it, and now we're looking at even longer, maybe three years, four texts. But what Simonides claims is that he used six texts, and not only six texts, but six texts sometimes in different languages. Yeah, that's a, this would have taken a, a, at the very least it would have taken him ten years. That's you, a tall order. Are you telling me that Simonides started this when he was ten years old, nine years old? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, no. Well, there are reports that he was a child prodigy as well. Yeah, but you and he was stellar at project management. <laughs> we just you know it's been said. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Uh, so I have I, it on oral tradition. I found that I found that clip of of uh, Pinto asking why why no one sought this out. But okay, let's let's move on to uh, dating. Listen to that. Uh, now. Where was the one where he says that anyone who uh, I, maybe it was this one? I want to listen to this because I think he basically said he basically says anyone who backs uh, Saint Atticus is is uh, you know of the Jesuit you know being controlled by the Jesuits. They refuse to focus on Codex Sinaiticus. They refused to really address uh, the specific claims that Simonides made, which could have been easily investigated. They all they had to do was, you know, go to the different places, talk to the different people that Simonides uh, mentioned, who who all of whom he said this person, that person, that person. They all saw me work on the manuscript. Go and talk to them, but they would not do that. They would not do that. They Joseph refused. Smith in the Book of Mormon kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And of course, after reading all the various newspaper articles and reading the accounts back and forth, I became very suspicious. Why didn't they go and just, you know... Okay, so the reason they didn't go is because, uh, obviously, the, the the claims were just outrageous. There's no way that this is, was even possible. I think this is the clip that we have of, of Pinto saying that it's a Jesuit, uh, a Jesuit conspiracy. To the dates... And, you, and them arguing, well, these earlier manuscripts are the oldest and the most reliable. Right there, as soon as you hear that, oldest and most reliable. How do we determine that they're the oldest? Who makes that decision? And isn't it strange that the people who made that decision, that these are the oldest manuscripts, happen to be working in cooperation with the Vatican? And in Okay, so hang on just a sec. Now, I, I assume that what he's talking about here is not modern-day scholars, but back in the 1800s. Okay, he's talking about the scholars who said that this is an old manuscript back in the 1800s, namely Tischendorf and others. Okay, Tischendorf was not a Catholic. He was working with the Vatican, though, because he had done a translation of Vaticanus. However, the point is, is that, and one of the first things that White says in the debate is, I assure you, uh, Mr. Pinto, I am not working for the Vatican or the Jesuits. <laughs> Uh, in fact, Dr. White, that you know of, <laughs> Dr. White is well known for actually debating Catholics on sola scriptura and other matters. He's written numerous books now on, uh, I should say, multiple. He's written multiple books on sola scriptura and uh, different uh, different arguments against Catholicism. And the point is, is that if you're who who is dating these, even today, Dr. Daniel Wallace, Dr. James White, others, other great 
modern day scholars are looking at these at, at Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, and they're telling us that these books, these uh, these codices, are extremely old, fourth century. So it's not just people who are working for the Vatican or the Jesuits. It's not just this huge conspiracy theory. I have talked a lot. I know that I've basically hijacked these past two shows from Rob. I apologize, Rob. I like it. I've learned a lot here. I have too, honestly. I, you know, even though I disagree with the person who wrote in the email that, you know, basically saying that they believed Pinto, even though I disagree with that person, I have to admit that this has been a very informative and very fun study. It took me, uh, you know, I've, this is the point. One point, if I could say, back to one one thing that Doctor White said. Mm-hmm. He said, "Look, is this how we conduct historical investigation? Hey-o! Is this just weights and measures? Do we just take some guy's testimony about himself, or do we look at other information?" I think there's just too much conspiracy-like, conspiracy theory-like tone to uh, Mr. Uh, Pinto's argument. Um, and you know what? You could look up any, any topic on the Internet, and you could find people that have given, and you could listen to them for a half hour or whatever, and it'll sound really plausible. See, man, they, they've really connected a lot of dots. I think there might be something to this. Then you look at the other angle, Listen to it long enough. Yeah, there might be something to this. That's what language is. These, you know, people want to persuade, and that desire to persuade and the the excitement of believing you have found some truth gets more attention, gets more energy than the actual pause and say, okay, let's go back and let's look. Are we building on rock right here? Are we building on rock or are we building on sand? That's a core distinction that Yeshua teaches us. We want to build on the rock, right? We want to build on the rock, and that means we're going to be quick to hear, slow to speak. The fact that you have this guy, uh, Pinto, teaching all about these manuscripts, but he's never studied Greek. He couldn't look at any of these manuscripts and even tell you what they say or anything about them means that He's lopsided in his, his, he doesn't have a robust uh, 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 proposition. He's not, he's not standing solid on the, on the rock. He's really invested in, in an, uh, making a big deal out of something, you know, a story that was 1500 years ago that there's no way to, to interview any of these people or anything like that. You just got to take it on faith that he's telling you what truth is. When in fact, I, I really appreciate Dr. White's ability to interact with someone like that who's that convinced and to not lose their temper, uh, you know, and to still interact with the person on the merits of the argument and to try to deal with them patiently at that level. That's a good skill. Um, but we need to, uh, we got to get back to the basics. You know, if, if we, the quick, the quick solution, it's, it's so easy to jump to institution bashing. Oh, the Roman church is, or like the Pope is the Antichrist, the, what else? The Jesuits are trying to rule the world, or the Jews are trying to rule the world. And to try to fit every, or the, the other one is uh, Prince Charles is the, is the beast. Okay, you know, 
it's so easy to take little caricatures like that and then run with them and then and then just tell all sorts of stories around them. We got to be careful of that. I don't think that that's what we're called to to chase after. No doubt. At one point in this uh, debate between White and Pinto, Pinto says, "Okay, but isn't it possible? Isn't it possible that you know?" And he goes on. And the point is, is that I what I would say is, no, it is not possible. It is not even possible. There's not a possibility that uh, that uh, Simonides was telling the truth. He was lying, and the reason we know that is because we can tell that it was done by four hands, po- maybe three, but pos- but more likely four hands not one hand with corrections by other people. We know that it was done on, uh, that it wasn't, it wasn't copied over something. So, uh, you know, for 1400 years, uh, we didn't have these, uh, these pages laying around somewhere that he just happened upon. Uh, and not only that, but for him to be able to compile six codes or six manuscripts into one full codex and to do all of the work himself, it's just a fantastic story. I think he would have had to start when he was nine years old. I'm not joking. And maybe even earlier than that. I don't think, I think that even a professional would, uh, would have had a very difficult time uh, putting together this, this kind of codex. And only having four people know about it. And only having, There would be yeah. a ton of people that would know about it. Right? I mean, it. Well, I mean, I guess his claim is that he was up on, uh, uh, you know, Mount whatever. Athos. Athos, yeah. uh, you know, at a monastery. Uh, but even then, he would have had to do. He would have had to. Uh, I mean, I think a professional who a professional collator and scribe uh, who was doing it by themselves would have probably taken at least five years. I would say even longer than that if they're collating six texts together. And uh, and and Simonides was not a professional collator, and so I would I would assume that we're looking at 10 years, at least. I, it's hard for me to believe, it's impossible for me to believe, that, uh, that he got this idea when he was nine, and that uh, you know, his handwriting was good enough at nine years old, and uh, all that, to be able to start a codex, and not have it look uh, leaps and bounds different 10 years later. Now, I granted, 10 years is an arbitrary number that I'm, that I'm creating. Uh, I grant that, but... I'm I just, leaning more towards nine, but... Okay, but uh, even then, I, I just don't see how how anyone could uh, could do it in, in in less time than that. Okay, enough of that. Well, I hope this has been informative. Uh, hey, I I want to know uh, from our listeners and particularly those in the chat room, if there's any specific passages of scripture that you all uh, would like us to tackle, or anything that's uh, giving you trouble. There's a Super Bowl. Uh image again yeah there you go um okay so uh <laughs> you made me lose my train of thought uh, if there is if there is a uh, a uh, bible passage you'd like us to look at uh, go ahead and shoot us an email chagatorresource.com or rvanhoffatorresource.com anything else to add before we uh play the end music and sign out nope um, i think we this was a good two shows good I think it was too. I had a I had a whole lot of fun. All right, so send us emails. As I said, send us emails to chagatorresource.com or our vanhoff at torresource.com. Um Yeah, I had fun. I hope y'all did too. And we'll be back next week. I am not sure what we're talking about, but there is a good amount that we could be talking about. So, 
Yeah. Uh, but I hope that uh, this look into Sinaiticus uh, was good. You can trust your Bibles. I hope you know that. Uh, we certainly believe that you can trust your Bibles and that what you have in your Bible is the God-breathed truth that we have today. And I hope that this look at Sinaiticus glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>